Hello and welcome to another episode of the TLDR Global Podcast. As usual, I am Zach Michaelis, TLDR's Editor-in-Chief, and I'm joined today by TLDR Global's lead writer, Rory Taylor. Hello. Hello, how are we doing today? Good. Yeah, Good. another two-man podcast. Yeah, it was, yeah, we had some technical difficulties. It was supposed to be a three-man with Jack, um, but unfortunately, we can only got two mics working, so yeah, what are you going to do? Um, anyway, in today's podcast, uh, the main story is going to be about Trump. Uh, and it's going to be both about the fact that Trump has just won in New Hampshire and now looks pretty dead set to be the Republican nominee for 2024. The polling is also pretty good for him and head to head against Biden, so there's a very good chance he ends up as US president. Um, but we're not just going to be talking about Trump, we're also going to be talking about the, the European reaction to the prospect of yet another Trump presidency. Um, but before we get into that, as is custom on this podcast, we're going to start with our unreported stories. So, Rory, what is your unreported story? So, mine is, um, it's not a hugely consequential one, if I'm totally honest. It's just a kind of mildly interesting, fun fun one. one. Yeah, so, um, as you said, it was a New Hampshire primary uh, yesterday, I think, uh, as day of recording. But, um, so, obviously, the Republican one got all the attention. The Democrats also sort of had a primary. um, But uh, it was very weird. Joe Biden won it, but he wasn't even on the ballot. And there were no state delegates awarded for it because of this very odd situation that happened. So um, the states, individual states, there's like an order that they go through when they have their primaries and caucuses. And New Hampshire is usually uh, one of the first ones. Yeah. Um, but this time around New Hampshire, it, the Democrats in New Hampshire tried to kind of jump the gun and, and, and place themselves right in first place. And uh, the Democratic uh, Party kind of headquarters didn't like that um, because it wasn't going with their official timetable. So they punished New Hampshire and said, we're not going to let you award any delegates because because so you've done weird. this. So um, because of that, uh, it was sort of this official, unofficial primary um, and the Biden campaign didn't even try and get their name on the ballot. So it was effectively a blank ballot and it was all write-ins. Um, so they, they managed to win by people writing in the name Joe Biden. And um, it also meant there were some, uh, it, it sort of gave a slightly higher chance for those um, minor candidates trying yeah. to challenge him. Um, Dean Phillips and Marianne Williamson and some others, they, they obviously didn't really, didn't come to anything, but you know, that was probably their best chance to get some, um, some headlines, were, you know, yeah. if, if they, if they actually got a pretty good showing there, but it wouldn't have mattered really because no delegates were awarded. So we have this weird thing where, Biden wasn't even on the ballot, and he won the primary in New Hampshire, but it doesn't really matter because there were no delegates awarded. It's the, ultimately, he's going to be the nominee, assuming yeah. he kind of stays some real, healthy. like, diehard Biden super yeah. fans writing in despite it not meaning yeah, anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's, uh, that's funny. You're right. All the attention, obviously, has been paid to the Republican mm. one. Uh, my reporter story is it's a bit late, actually. It sort of happened uh, in early January, but it's about Norway granting licenses uh, for deep sea mining. Mm. And Norway's been granting uh, more licenses for like uh, natural gas exploration in not just the North Sea, which is sort of between Norway and the UK, but also the Norwegian Sea and the Barents Sea, which are basically the two sort of seas north of Norway, in between Norway and the Arctic. Um, But Norway has now recently granted deep sea mining licenses, or at least said that it's open to deep sea mining, uh, for not oil or gas, but for like precious metals. Mm. And this basically is because on the, on the surface of the Barents and North Seas, I'm not on the surface, on the sort of um, the sea the bottom, the seabed, yeah. uh, there are these deposits of certain metals like cobalt, scandium and lithium and stuff like that that are supposed to be very important for the energy transition. Um, and Norway has obviously seen that the price of these metals is really, really going mm. up very, very fast, but also 
because obviously there's a lot of demand for them as part of the energy transition. They're used for stuff like batteries and electric cars and um, various other bits of like high-end technology. Uh, but also they're sourced from very unreliable places. So, for example, a lot like the cobalt comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's not the most politically stable place in the world. Um, and I think this is interesting for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, it's provoked a bit of an uproar in, in parts of Norway um, because there's like an environmental angle to yeah. it. People are worried about the ecological impacts. It's also worth saying that both the EU and the UK have said they're against commercial deep sea mining for those sort of things. Um, but I think it's more interesting for two reasons. One, a lot of this debate about like the scarcity of lithium, cobalt, stuff like that, mirrors a debate that happened about oil in the end of the 20th century when that was like the, the most important energy mm. commodity. And people kept on saying, we've reached peak oil. That was the turn of phrase they used. Like, there's not going to be enough of it. We've got to stop yeah. using oil because we're going to run out. And we kept on finding new sources of oil. I mean, most of the big discoveries did happen in the early part of the 20th century, but we kept on finding stuff through the latter half. And then we obviously had the shale oil boom mm. in the 2010s. And something very similar is happening with lithium, especially. So lithium, there was all this chat about we're going to run out of lithium. The cost of batteries is going to skyrocket. Yeah. Um, and it's actually gone down. Uh, and part of this is because we've just found more lithium deposits. Demand has gone up and we've started looking mm. around a bit more. Um, there's a really good piece by Hannah Ritchie, who's on, she does the world in data uh, about sort of peak lithium and the fact that we keep on finding more of these rare earth minerals. Um, and I think, I mean, it's annoying for me because I've always been a big uh, advocate of nuclear power because I thought we were going to run out of lithium mm. and so it was too expensive. So I've lost that battle. But <laughs> it's good for humanity that we're yeah. finding new sources of these uh, like critically important minerals and metals for the energy transition. Um, and I also think it reminds us that there is a geopolitics to the, the, the energy future, to the energy transition. Yeah. Uh, and I think a lot of Europe hopes that moving away from oil and gas can give Europe energy independence. It can sort of gift us uh, an independence from like Russian gas and American oil and mm. the Middle Eastern oil and all that sort of thing. Uh, and all the sort of difficulties that come with those dependencies. But I think that that's probably a bit naive. And in the end, all of the bits of the but basically renewable energy still requires commodities, still requires manufacturing, and that's still done in, you know, difficult, jibbitedly contentious yeah. places. You know, we still rely a lot, for example, on China for our, like, solar panels and our wind panels, and it's not as simple as just, like, oh, we can just make them all here. Yeah. And, you know, at the very sort of, the, the most basic level, we still rely on commodities mined in places like the Congo, in places like Russia. Um, and so this is a sort of, like, there's a tacit realisation that we need to find our own domestic sources of of these like critically important energy minerals, which have sort of like replaced oil as like yeah. the strategically significant energy commodity. And the last thing I think is interesting, it can, can make Norway even wealthier. I mean, yeah. Norway is just scandalously rich. Like yeah. Sovereign Wealth Fund has something like 200,000 euros for every Norwegian. Man, they've got even more. They can just it's, top it up now with it's lithium unbelievable. Wealth. We're mm. jealous, very jealous. Um, anyway, those are the unimportant stories. Now is the main bit of the video. Um, we're talking about Trump. And obviously, as we mentioned a second ago, we've just had the New Hampshire primary. Uh, if it wasn't already abundantly clear after Iowa, uh, it has become sort of just totally apparent that Trump is almost definitely going to be the Republican nominee in 2024. He beat Nikki Haley by, I think, like a projected 11 points. And then we've got the final results now. Um, and New Hampshire is supposed to be like a very pro-Nikki Haley state. You know, Nikki Haley overperforms with basically like educated uh high-income Republicans, and New Hampshire has a lot more like educated new high-income Republicans than most of the other states that we're going to see um, in the next couple of days. And the fact that she still lost to Trump there really suggests that she doesn't really stand a chance. If she can't win in New Hampshire, she almost definitely can't win in any of the other relevant states. Um, and so 
I guess the main question is, let's just assume Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. Yeah. What does the polling say? Does that mean that Trump could win in 2024? We could have a second term of President Trump? I mean, we definitely could. Yeah. And polling, you know, if you're in the Biden camp, you you might be slightly worried about the polling because head to head, Trump does seem to be leading Biden. It obviously is, is, you know, looking head to head in the swing states is more important than just looking nationally. Um, But there are polls do range, but in places like Michigan, um, where Biden won last time round, and he'll definitely need to win this time round. And there was a poll recently where Trump was leading him. Um, and that's the case for lots of other swing states. Um, it's not, the difficulty is it's, it's, it's a toss up really, you know, it could go either way and there's still a long time to go before the actual election itself. So, um, you know, I, I can't say what's going to happen, but if you say could Trump win, he absolutely could win. And as we'll get on to, I think European politicians are starting to prepare for that. Yeah. Um, possibility. I think one of the things that you're right, polling is f- almost like irrelevant at mm. this point. Like it's just so far out. It doesn't really have much predictive power. I think one interesting thing that I've noticed in, in the sort of like polling and the discourse around 2024 is that there is a divide between what the polls say and what the forecasters say. Mm. So I don't know how much people know about this, but one of the things like Dominic Cummings was very big into in the UK was this idea of super forecasters. It's basically people who have very good record at predicting events. Um, and you basically get them in a room or like an internet room equivalent and you get them to make their forecast and you aggregate them and there are a whole lot of websites that do this like metacalculus is one uh, there's a place called good judgment that does it as well and very very often these like markets these predictive markets have far better predictive power than polls for example normally there's a bit of a correlation like you know if you the super forecasters the forecasting communities that were thinks that Starmer will win, unsurprisingly, mm. in 2024, <clears throat> as the polls suggest. So, like, you know, there's a ratio between two, but there is more of a divide on the question of who wins in 2024 yeah. between the forecasters and the polls um, than there is in other races. Because, basically, the polls do suggest at the moment that Trump has a slight edge uh, in the relevant states. Um, but the forecasting communities, well, I don't know how best to describe yeah. them, super forecasters feels a bit grandiose, but they reliably give Biden a slight edge mm. on that. And I think that's just because if you, you sort of imagine how the next like nine months play out, like there's a good chance Trump's legal woes catch up with them even more than they have done. I do think Biden might get a bit more credit for the economy, finally. Yeah. Um, I think a lot depends on like the foreign policy, geopolitical situation, but you can't really predict how that yeah. pans out anyway. Um, so I think that is like a, a note of optimism for those Europeans who are worried about yeah. Trump presidency. I think there's also, um, I was reading about all the recent special elections that have happened in the States where Democrats have consistently overperformed. Yeah. And, you know, all of these races will have local elements, but that's a good time Democrats going into the November election um, because it shows that the, the issues like abortion are still very like prevalent in people's minds when they go to vote. And if they can, if the Democrats and Biden can use that, in their election campaign, then then they have a good chance of kind of turning it, things It's also around. because Democrats have a better like reputation, mm. better uh, public appeal than Republicans as parties. Yeah. Um, but whether or not that, how much that difference it makes in a sort of head-to-head presidential match between Biden and yeah. Trump, you know, no one really knows yet. I think the other thing is worth saying is that I do think that Trump is probably a worse media performer than people remember. Uh, I think there, there's quite good evidence that Trump has lost some of his sort of like um, rhetorical edge yeah. over the years. You do see him make some quite sort of conspicuous slip-ups. I mean, again, he's pretty old as well. He's yeah, 80 or whatever. The, the Biden, uh, I mean, Biden, Republicans will always go after Biden because of his age and his kind of gaffes. But so Biden unfair. campaign is now going after Trump for the same thing. And it's, we're going to get into this point where we've got like, 
two old men within a couple of years of each other just accusing each other of being the most senile and it's not a great way to run it's, an election again it's not a hot take but it's quite sad that it comes <laughs> yeah. this isn't it yeah um you forget there was it was romney obama like not really yeah. that's what a decade and a bit that's ago like so youthful compared yeah, to this yeah. one <laughs> admit that amazing stat that macron and atal together are still yeah. younger than both younger of them. them yeah um anyway let's yeah so you mentioned a second ago the the europeans are preparing for mm. this um what do you mean by preparing? What have you? What have we seen so far? So um, one quite good quote that made the news uh, in the last few days was from the Belgian Prime Minister Alexander de Croo. He, uh, I'm just going to read it verbatim. He says, if, 20, "If 2024 brings us America first, as in Trump again, it will be more than ever Europe on its own. We should, as Europeans, not fear that prospect. We should embrace it. Europe must become stronger, more sovereign, and more self-reliant." So he's effectively saying. Um, you know, if, if Trump does win the pre- presidency again, we can no longer rely on the US for, you know, security as we used to. And in terms of economics also, like the Europe will have to kind of be more, um, what's the, what's the word? Strategic, uh, strategic autonomy. Yeah. Strategic, strategically yeah, autonomous. autonomous. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so that's the kind of eventuality they're they're looking at that, um, Europe will kind of have to go it alone. Um, and we kind of saw that that did kind of happen during the first Trump presidency. But I think when Biden came back in, there was this, uh, not back in, when Biden came in in, in 2020, um, there was a this kind of sigh of relief in Europe. But I don't think that fully, uh, you know, that didn't stop Europe from trying to move towards strategic autonomy. Um, but maybe it, it just let them rest on their laurels slightly. I think that, that, that point is really interesting about like, uh, people have really interpreted, so the, the like popular reading of the past four years when it comes mm. to like transatlantic relationships is that Biden represents this high point yeah. in Europe, Europe-America relations, uh, especially sort of sandwiched between a Trump presidency and a potential Trump presidency. Yeah. I'm not sure that's really true. I think they reach a high point after Ukraine. Yeah. There's clearly sort of like complete agreement on Ukraine. But I think in the last year or so, I think you've actually already seen uh, the Europeans get more increasingly wary about their yeah. over-reliance on the US. I mean, that's partly because... American support for Ukraine has not waned or like dwindled. I mean, the White House is still very like pro-Ukraine, but there are political hurdles to yeah. that support, especially in Congress. Um, and that has made the Europeans wary. But I think there have been another couple of things that have really strained quite, no one's really noticed, I don't think, but they have really strained uh, European uh, American relations. And one of them, I think is the inflation reduction act, yeah. which people don't really think about. Well, that's not true. A lot of people talk about it, but I think the Biden administration didn't really think about the impact it would have on EU-America relations when yeah. they passed it. They saw it as just like, you know, the Europeans always talk about green energy. Surely they'll love this, yeah. this thing we're doing to help us improve our green energy. We normally produce all this oil and coal or oil and gas, whatever. Um, but obviously that's not how the IRA went down in yeah. Europe. Um, people, especially Macron, were furious because mm. they saw the Inflation Reduction Act basically have these enormous subsidy schemes for all these renewable energies. They just worried that European companies, European renewable energy companies, were just going to flee to America. Yeah to make use of these massive subsidies that the Europeans just can't afford. We don't have as much fiscal space as the Americans. The Americans can afford to pour, I make this point so often, but I really think it yeah. is very, very important. Um, they can afford to pour billions of dollars into nuclear power, into wind energy, into solar, into batteries, into semiconductors. We just don't have that, or at least we, we don't have the political appetite for that kind mm. of borrowing. Um, and yeah, and so I think that was the first bit. And I think that really upset Macron, but it also upset the Germans because the Germans are very worried about deindustrialization. The German economy is obviously based on quite heavy industries and exporting um, like stuff like cars, obviously, and yeah. various like manufactured parts. Um, 
And they've suffered a little bit recently, partly because of the withdrawal of Russian gas, um, but also because of the rise of protectionism across the world. And the Germans have always been very big advocates of free markets. You saw that actually in some of the comments that Schultz made last year when he was basically pushing back against Macron's efforts to start an EU investigation into uh, Chinese cars and basically accusing the Chinese of protectionism. Um, But yeah, so it's upset both. I think the IRA was, was a point of tension. I also think that the French have always been obviously less pro-American than, let's mm. say, the Germans. And I think the balance of power within the EU is shifting away from Germany, I think part because obviously Schultz is very unpopular, yeah. also not really an international politician. He's quite a quiet politician. Yeah. But also because Germany's economy is struggling. Um, and some of German foreign policy looks a little bit complacent in light of Ukraine, what's mm. happening in Ukraine. Um, and at the same time, I know Macron is very, very unpopular, but... He has a reputation as a statesman. He's sort of filled the political void there. So I think the balance of power is shifting towards France and therefore Europe is also shifting away from America a little bit. Yeah. And the final thing I think is worth mentioning is the middle, and I think we're going to get to this, but is, is Israel. And I do think that, sure, many European countries have been pretty pro-Israel and they've been pretty much on side with what the Americans have wanted. But you've seen that European support has waned faster than American support yeah. for Israel. And I think you're also seeing that Europeans are being reminded of the fact that there is just an asymmetry in the Middle East in that America has more power, but it's insulated from its worst effects. So if there is a further escalation in the Middle East or some sort of humanitarian crisis, the countries that are affected from the increased risk of terrorism, for example, and increased migration flows, which are already proving politically contentious in Europe, are the Europeans. Um, and also the countries that are affected when it comes to oil and gas are the Europeans, because we're yeah. the ones who import our, all our oil from the Persian Gulf, from Saudi Arabia, from Kuwait, all our gas, by the way, from Qatar. The gas from Qatar is already, just actually I should flesh this out a little bit, France, Germany, and Italy, I think, or no, France, maybe, France, Italy, and one of the, the Netherlands, I think. Oh, one of them. France, Italy, <laughs> and the Netherlands, I'm going to say, have all signed 27-year natural gas deals with Qatar. 27 years. That's until 2050. That is enormous. Mm. We are, like, really, really reliant on Qatar for our natural gas. And natural gas is gonna become even more important. It's like a bridge fuel while we make the energy transition because it has lower CO2 emissions than oil. So we're using it while we wean ourselves off oil to reduce our CO2 emissions before we get to like a fully renewable future if we ever get there. Um, and the places where you can get gas, basically, there's basically three, uh, maybe four if we include Qatar, but it's, it's Russia, we can't do that. It's Iran, we can't do that at the moment. Uh, and then it's America, but the America it, that's complicated in part because America sort of wants to keep its gas for itself. And so we've all turned to this tiny little Gulf state, Qatar, because it has some of the world's biggest natural gas reserves. And that's fine. It makes geopolitical sense. Um, but it means that we are singularly reliant on this one state that exports all its stuff via the Red Sea up through the Suez Canal. And Qatar has already said in the last couple of days, we're going to have to at least slow. That's uh, all right. The shipments of natural gas, liquefied natural gas, to Europe because we have we can no longer go through the Red Sea. Um, and I think basically, well, this is again such a rant. But the, this whole affair has reminded us that actually, when it comes to the Middle East, Europe and the US just do have different, in some cases, competing strategic interests, uh, and that can create tension. So I think that actually, you've already seen tensions emerge in the American European mm. relationship, and I think. The, obviously, Trump, the prospect of Trump presidency uh, could strain those further. Um, I was just going to jump in because there was an interesting um, dynamic with the, the US and UK strikes on the Houthis in Yemen that European leaders were pretty quiet or cautious in responding to those. You know, they not- notably didn't uh, take part in them. Yeah. Um, and they also didn't really welcome them. They just kept 
urging uh, de-escalation and calm. Yeah. I think that was quite a visible divide between the two blocs. Also worth mentioning that there's this Operation Prosperity, mm. and sure, a lot of European countries are nominally signed up for that, but in its most recent statement, which was basically attacking the Houthis and condemning yeah. Iran, uh, mainly the Houthis, but tacitly Iran, um, the French conspicuously refused to sign that, yeah. that latest uh, mm. like statement. So, you could, yeah, you, if you look, you can see tensions emerging in within Europe, but also between Europe and, and the US. Mm. Um, I think the next thing to talk about is actually basically ask, if Trump were to come in, what would Trump's foreign policy be? Um, and I guess the, most, the one that gets the most coverage is Ukraine. Yeah. So do we have any sense of what Trump would do on Ukraine? It's so difficult with Trump because he... He will say contradictory things. He will say he's got plans for some things without fleshing them out. He's, he's very hard to predict. But fundamentally with Ukraine, you know, the question is, will Trump keep supporting Ukraine in the way that Biden has? Yeah. And his answer has generally been like, well, I'll solve the, I'll, I'll, I'll end the war in 24 hours. So it doesn't really matter. Um, Love it. And, you know, that, that's not an answer. <laughs> not an answer. Um, but, you know, if, if the Republican Party is anything to go by, especially his wing of the party, then they're then they are much less supportive of Ukraine than um, than Biden and the Democrats have been. So I think that is a real risk for Ukraine, Zelensky, and I guess the European kind of pro-Ukraine project, yeah. um, that Trump could completely just turn the whole thing on its head. Um, I think you're but, right, though, that the, that the best way, of, I think the word used is unreliable. Yeah. That is the best way of characterising Trump's foreign policy. Like, I think he has, isol- he has competing instincts. I have a, he has an isolationist instinct. In that he wants to just get America out of the forever wars. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, it's it's a sort of revamped version of Obama's foreign policy in 2007 when he said something like, don't do stupid stuff. Yeah. And it's the same idea. It's just yeah. like, what are we doing? What does that mean? Yeah, just yeah. let's just get out of everything. Yeah. But then he also has this sort of like American power instinct, which is that he wants to like uh, exhibit, he wants to sort of like show the world how powerful America is. And yeah. they often push, push in different directions. It's very odd because he's... He he's sort of an isolationist, but also is the kind of person who thinks America can and maybe should go and like bomb places into submission or like use yeah. their kind of power to get their way. But those, those yeah, they're not they're not um, consistent. No, positions that, to hold. That, I think that's what actually provokes anxiety in Europe. Mm. I mean, in a sense, it would be better if we just knew that Trump was going to pull out of Ukraine. Yeah, we at least know what to plan, plan. for. Yeah. But I think I mentioned this before. But in that interview on Fox News, talking about his Ukraine policy, he says, "I'll solve the war in 24 hours." And the person says, "Well, what if you don't?" And he says, "I'll give the Ukraine bigger weapons they've ever seen." Yeah, <laughs> and like, what does that mean? Yeah, I mean, in theory, Ukraine should hear that and think, "Great," but like. They can't hear that and think, well, that's going to happen. Because, yeah, it's just unreliable. Yeah, and I guess yeah. that's why Europeans are so anxious yeah. about it. Um, I think you saw something similar. Again, I think there's one reported in his comments on Taiwan, mm. um, where a couple of days ago he was asked by Fox News, like, would you basically, would you invade, uh, would you defend, defend Taiwan, Taiwan yeah. in the event of a Chinese invasion? And his response was, I mean, it was quite telling, I actually. I have the whole quote here. Yeah, I would love to hear it. the yeah. whole quote. Go on. Um, he said, uh, Taiwan, Taiwan took all of our chip business we used to make all of our own chips. Now they're made in Taiwan. 90% of them. Remember this. Taiwan took smart, brilliant. They took our business. <laughs> so I don't know if I got the intonation right. But yeah, he, so he didn't answer the, if, but yeah, he didn't answer the question as that will he defend Taiwan? But by not answering it, it's quite an obvious sense. You get a sense of where his head is at. On yeah. That. I think the other thing, by the way, though, is it, before that, he says, I can't tell you because that would give away oh, my like negotiating yeah. power, which is interesting because there's a, there's a truth to that. Mm. There's a truth to the fact that like, you know, the, the mad dictator theory or the mad time yeah. theory of foreign politics, which foreign policy, which is just that like, if no one knows what you're going to do and you're very, very unpredictable, 
they'll be scared of upsetting you. Yeah. And there's something to that, but it makes it very like very hard for your allies, especially mm. in Europe, because if you're abiding by that sort of mad tyrant theory for yeah. policy, no one can plan ahead, and you they, yeah. Europe basically has to ensure against the worst possible outcomes. Yeah. Um, um, do you want to talk about NATO at all in that kind of in that kind of sphere? Because yeah, we should definitely talk about NATO. We should, what have you got? You got Middle East and NATO on your thing. Yes, yeah, NATO. Should we, can we finish on NATO? I want to yeah, say one more thing on sure. the Middle East. Basically, at the moment, we have this crisis in the Red Sea. The Houthis obviously attacking commercial maritime traffic that's going up through the Bab al-Mandab Strait, through the Red Sea, then through the Suez Canal into the Mediterranean, and then Europe, yeah? And there are two important bits, two basically big bits of trade that run through this route. There are oil exports from Persian Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia that then go through to Europe, which is obviously like an oil-consuming continent um, and then also there are the, that is the main trade passage for european trade with east asia and including china and obviously europe and china do a lot of trade together so a lot of trade flows through that and there's something like 20 to 30 percent of all global maritime trade therefore flows through the red sea so we've got this red sea crisis and what's happened here is this has reminded the world of the very important role that the u.s navy plays in basically guaranteeing maritime trade across the globe um, so that the U.S. Navy sort of tacitly or implicitly says, I'm going to make sure that commercial ships can transit through these waters so that we can have frictionless global trade, which is which is sort of a good thing. Um, and it's, I think it's really, really interesting that this is like a, this has been taken as a given since World War II. Uh, every uh, American president's basically said, fine, this is what we do. Um, we are like the sort of advocates and therefore the protectors of free trade. And in 2019, Trump came in and basically said, why are we doing this? Like, you know, why are we protecting mm. a trade route which, in the end of the day, mainly benefits China? Because, especially if you're talking about the Persian Gulf, which is not the same as the Red Sea, it's just to the east of that, on the other side of Saudi Arabia. Um, that is where all of the oil from places like Saudi Arabia and Iran goes through to China. China is a big oil consumer, has been since the 90s. It needs it for tons of manufacturing it does. And Trump, in 2019, puts out this tweet. Where he goes, what are we doing in what are we doing in the Persian Gulf? You know why? I think it just comes just after Iran or one of the Houthis attack a Saudi oil facility, mm. um, and it's basically after Trump reimposes sanctions and there's some tension in the Persian Gulf, and he says, well, why are we there? Why are the we we don't need this oil? Why are we protecting Chinese oil imports? And the answer to that question, by the way, even from Trump's perspective, is that the alternative is the Chinese protecting yeah. Chinese oil exports. And I don't think the Americans would be entirely comfortable with the Chinese playing the role of international trade guarantor. Um, but the, it would be really interesting if you just imagine that counterfactual. Imagine Trump is in now and we get this chaos on the Red Sea. You know, would you expect Trump to come, a Trump-led US Navy to come and protect trade? I mean, if the answer is no, then all of a sudden, basically, Europe's life looks a lot more yeah. difficult because... If there's no effort to protect trade going through there, then everything has to be redirected. And then all of a sudden we do have to pay higher shipping yeah. costs. Um, and, and just more generally, for a country that relies, a continent even, Europe, that relies so heavily on strategic imports, the fact that maritime trade would be sort of vulnerable, generally vulnerable, if the US withdraws from its role mm. as a sort of maritime trade guarantor, that's a far more precarious geopolitical and economic situation. Um so I just think that's really interesting. I think in, in a way, it would be very, very interesting just to have Trump in for this very particular crisis because it's something he complained about very directly yeah. in 2019 um, and could then quieten down about. But I do think this would be an interesting like uh, test case to see mm. between what the differences between Biden and Trump would be. Yeah, I think 
I mean, you mentioned that he he made those remarks and then kind of quietened down. I think that the thing with Trump's first term was that a lot of his instincts and and more like controversial things he might have wanted to do were slightly tempered <coughs> tempered by the people around him. But I think going into a sec- potential second term, he's going to be surrounded by a lot more like-minded people and people who are probably more extreme than the people he had in his first term. Yeah, and the risk is that the thing the the people that were tempering him aren't there anymore, and you know that. Yeah, that means those kind of random thoughts he has on a you know, Wednesday <laughs> evening thoughts, might turn yeah. into policy rather than just a comment that he made. No, no, he always, there's, there's a lot of reports. He already has a team around him who are there to facilitate like his most extreme yeah. plans, especially domestically. I don't know how much there's about foreign policy. Um, people often talk about one of the things that does seem to like come up regularly in in Trump foreign policy circles is this idea that America can't do everything. Yeah. I think that is pretty key to the way that Trump's circle think about foreign policy. Elbridge Colby is a very prominent writer on this topic, and he is probably going to be part of the Trump inner mm. circle. And he's been arguing for a long time that basically the U.S. cannot do Ukraine and Taiwan. So he's just yeah. been... And that, that's not actually that like controversial position. I mean, that is sort of the subtext to... Yeah. The Obama foreign policy, it's just that we, we can't do the Middle East and China. We're yeah. doing a pivot to Asia. That's the whole point of the pivot. Um, but it's nonetheless a pretty worrying thing for European politicians to hear. And Elbridge Colby has now been saying, well, we definitely can't do Ukraine, Israel, yeah. and Taiwan. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the starkest difference. I mean, you do, it's, it's a weird that Biden is the one who's saying we can do all three of those things. He has said that explicitly. Yeah. I mean, he has that yeah. amazing quote where he's like, we're the strongest country in the history <laughs> of the America, world. Yeah. yeah. Um, we, of course, we can fight three massive wars. Um, but I do think that is one difference between the, the Biden and Trump, yeah. at least in potential administrations. Mm. Um, anyway, NATO. Yeah, so Trump Sorry, has... that was not a prompt at all, but <laughs> NATO. Yeah, NATO. Um, Trump has, has, over the years, been very critical of NATO in various forms. You know, critical of other NATO members for not paying their 2% of uh, defence budget. Um, critical because he thinks it's just, uh, you know, a way of drawing the US into wars that it shouldn't be drawn into. Um, lots of reasons. But um, I think there's this fear uh, with a second Trump presidency among uh, NATO members that Trump might try and just unilaterally pull out of NATO or openly say, actually, you know, we won't abide by Article 5, you won't come to a, a member states defense if they're attacked where people talk yeah people question the legality of leaving nato yeah that's sort of a redundant conversation isn't it? i mean if he said that, yeah then that's you can stay in it but just not do anything yeah, refuse yeah. to refuse to take part and um so there was this quote that uh so so france's eu commissioner w- revealed that trump said to him and to ursula von der Leyen back in 2020 allegedly trump said you need to understand that if europe is under attack we will never come to help you and to support you by the way nato is dead and we will leave we'll quit nato you know he allegedly said these things to very high profile Europeans and whether he does that or not, that's just those words alone seriously undermines the whole concept, the whole principle of NATO. Um, and so, so the U S Congress actually in their latest um, military spending bill, they included a provision that effectively bars the president from unilaterally withdrawing from NATO as a kind of defense against that. But like you said, that only kind of protects against that withdrawal. It doesn't mean he has to abide by article 5 or whatever but um yeah i think nato is would be undermined by second trump presidency <laughs> to say the yeah. least yeah <laughs> um and that 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 factors into the whole european strategic autonomy thing you know that will just that will push uh, that the cause for like a, a european army or at least european security alliance of some 
yeah. form, that will just kind of um, galvanize that, that yeah. movement, I think. And I think Europe is moving towards that a yeah. little bit. I think that you, you, you see this sort of like split. That there's obviously always been the Germany-France split over how seriously or how load-bearing uh, the EU should be as a security vector. Yeah. Um, but more recently, there's there's been a more acute split between like Eastern Europe and France because uh, even if the Eastern Europeans are more sort of like pro-defense, you know, they spend more on their defense, yeah. they've always been very wary of taking directions from the French mm. and they much re- much prefer to be sort of alongside the Americans. You know, Poland is the best case. Yeah. Poland is obviously very, very strongly pro-American and, and very skeptical of the French. Mm. Um, but I do think you're right. I think if if Trump gets in, I do think America, Europe will just have to take its security yeah. more seriously and it will have to develop an independent security structure. The EU will have to come more load-bearing in that respect. Um, I think you already see the beginnings of this preparation being made and the fact that both France and the UK have now signed bilateral deals mm. in just the past month. Actually, I think Macron is off to Ukraine in February to finalise it. Yeah. But they are going to sign bilateral security agreements with Ukraine. And that's the sort of, that is in some sense a sort of like it's preparing, yeah. which it's hedging for a Trump presidency. Um, I just think it's one of those things where, you know, and this is, this is my bias coming through here. Macron was right. He was <laughs> right. He, of course he was right. And Europe did have to, t- I think, I just do think that Europe should have taken its own security mm. more seriously. Um, and I, th- yeah, I think that but you're right. If there is a Trump presidency, we will see the EU taking on a more like active security posture. Um, the last thing I say about that is, I think in a way, Brexit. This is an. It's just an interesting way these things interact. I think Brexit has sort of helped that. I think that one of the main impediments to an independent security, European security yeah. infrastructure, was the UK. The UK is like maybe it's one of the biggest them in France, the biggest army in Europe. But the UK has always been very wary mm. about committing to like a an integrated European army or whatever it is. Um, there was actually some movement towards that, by the way, done by Tony Blair back in like 2005, or maybe even a bit earlier, actually. And then it all collapses because of Iraq. And then that's when the yeah. Brits and the French really fall out. Um, but yeah, I think that that is an interesting like point to make, is that actually mm. I think maybe there is a bit more political space for the EU to take its own security more seriously because yeah. the UK is sort of out of the way in that Do respect. you think in, I don't know, 50 years' time, there'll be like a history and politics exam question that says... Um, Donald Trump and Brexit were the biggest drivers of European integration in the 2010s and 2020s or something. Yeah, that would be great. Of of King of Europe, Macron. (laughs) That's what created the space for it. Um, Yeah, I think think it's always interesting to think about like the Brexit counterfactuals, about how different things would look if there was, the UK was still in the the EU. I was thinking interesting to see how Starmer wants to relate to what is yeah. an EU that is more of a security or more load-bearing in security terms than it was during Brexit when the EU was considered, at least in like British public discourse, it was perceived as prim- primarily an economic union. Mm. Um, and if it's more of a security union, you know, what sort of relationship does Starmer build there with the EU? Um, but these are all questions that are clearly far too big for it. Yeah teenagers like us so um i think that is everything unless there's anything else you want to talk about no, no? um well thank you very much for, for no there is the global leader oh leaderboard. fuck of course it's sorry yeah. <laughs> sorry i don't that, forget that. that that's the best bit yeah. of the pod um okay
Uh, yeah, hello and welcome to the uh, Global Leader Leaderboard. We'll make it quick. Yeah, well, yeah. we basically put someone up and someone down. Again, as always, just to make this clear, this is not a reflection of personal politics. This is just from that particular individual perspective, had they had a good week or a bad week, or seems yeah. to be the last of the podcast. So, Rory, who is going down? Uh, I'm moving Donald Tusk down. Um, he's, you know, he must be in his month, first month and a half as new Polish Prime Minister. Yeah. Um, and I think he's learning that, I mean, he's learning, he knew this before, that, that kind of un, unpicking and undoing the things that the Law and Justice Administration had done is going to be a lot harder than yeah. many people might have thought. So um, the, the thing in particular from the last week has been that the um, a tribunal has um, deemed his overhaul of the, the media system as um, unlawful, effectively. Yeah. Um, and that's just, yeah, I don't, I don't need to go into it too much. It's quite obvious why that's bad for him. But yeah, I think it's just he's got a very difficult task ahead to try and revert back to what it was before law and justice came in. Yeah, but I saw, so I saw that, and I sort of have two competing thoughts about this. I should say that we did a video on this mm. uh, about Poland's like political crisis, and I don't think we made enough of this. I don't think we did enough sort of like um, both siding it. But like, sure, everyone's been like, "Oh, what a hypocrite!" Like he's had a go at law and justice for being unconstitutional, and then mm. he's gone broken the law himself. I sort of half by that, but then I also sort of think like I'm picking this in like any reason amount of time is just going to require you to move fast and break things. Yeah. Like it just is. I, I don't feel any queasiness about, and maybe then I, this is, again, it's an opinion. This is not the opinion of the channel. Um, but I, I actually think it's the right thing to do. I quite like that. He's like pushing the boundaries of constitutionality and legality to get it done as fast as possible. I wouldn't want, I think it would, it would make the PIS's point if he just, uh, had stuck so like stubbornly within the laws of like, yeah, uh, convention or within like the, the boundaries of convention and then just didn't get it done. It would just make his whole yeah. premiership, his whole project redundant. It, it was, it's also worth pointing out that the court that said his reform was unlawful is entirely appointed by um, law and justice, the yeah. law and justice government. So like, yeah. It, was, it, it creates this really uncomfortable grey zone, doesn't it? Where we're not, it's very, very unclear about how to like evaluate it. Like, is he doing the right thing or the wrong yeah. thing? Because like, is it legal? But then again, like what does legal mean once you've had a legal system that's been hijacked mm. by a sort of like, or like captured by a uh, very partisan administration, yeah. administrations. Once you basically have a legal system that's been politicized, yeah. um, then it's very hard to like basically evaluate you know, like legal rulings. Anyway, yeah. um, so my person going down is Biden for reasons. Fair. Is he at the bottom yet? No, he's not. But I think unfortunately- He's going down to the bottom. He's going down to yeah. the bottom. We're running out of people to put the bottom. Um, you talk and I'll move those two. Okay. Okay. And my person going up- uh, and again, we've done a video on this, so I'll point you to it, it's over on TLDRU, is Gert Wilders. And Wilders is going up not because he won the Dutch election last year, he obviously did, um, but because polling, albeit from December, but there's good reason to think this polling has continued. The polling for Wilders has gone up recently, and polling from December suggests that he would win an extra 10 seats if the election were held today, mostly at the expense of the VVD, who are the centre-right party who've been in power for most of the last few years, or like the main party and coalition, previously led by Mark Rutte, um, and now led by a new leader who's far less popular. Um, so those are, that's my person going up. Who is yours going up? Um, I'm moving Fumio Kishida up, Japanese Prime Minister, who's been at the very bottom of our board for some time now. Finally moving up, moving him up one spot. And this is... Um, off the back of a, we made a video about this and talked about it on the podcast before, where there's been this big scandal in Japan surrounding the LDP, the ruling party, um, all about undeclared um, 
political fundraising and, and kickbacks to politicians and all sorts of stuff. You should watch the video if you're interested. But um, that saw Kishida's approval crater and the LDP's polling numbers start to drop as well to like record low levels. But it's starting to look like he might be able to turn things around uh, because he took this kind of gamble and said, look, uh, for reference, the LDP has lots of factions in it. It's yeah. quite a factional party. He said, to, to try and uh, kind of push the party into reforming itself, I'm going to dissolve my faction. Um, so he, he announced that. Now other factions, including the Abe faction, which is the biggest one and most powerful one, is also going to dissolve. And um, yeah, so, so he, he might be able to turn himself into the kind of person who who fixes the party rather than being like a symbol of its corruption i suppose so if he yeah. manages to do that that would be pretty pretty good for him um and there's some signs his polling is getting better he, his <laughs> approval in one poll went up three points from 20 to 23 yeah. percent so that's, that's positive <laughs> i suppose still pretty low and uh, i personally don't think he'll survive the year as prime minister but like i think He's in a better position now than he was a couple of weeks ago. It's a very tentative up. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. But it gives us some space on the board. I got yeah. my sock out of camera. Anyway, I think that is everything. Um, unless I forgot another no. section. <laughs> uh, thank you very much for watching. And hopefully see you again uh, either on Thursday if you want this podcast or on Tuesday if you want the slightly less educational CLDR UK <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but thank you very much for watching. And hopefully see you again sometime next week. Bye. <laughs> Wow, taking shots yeah, of the very, very